Welcome to this week's episode of Last Ones at the Bar. We're here to discuss the most salient, salient issues this week in the sport of boxing. And I'm accompanied by my main man, LaVelle Jackson, AKA Machiavelli. Bill, what's the word? Hey, what's up, man? Just happy to be here, man. Happy to talk some, some more boxing like we, you know, we do every week. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm Wilton Henry, you know, AKA North Millie Willie. You know, AKA Money May Henry. Let me, <laughs> let me quit all the slick talk, man. Um, but yeah, man, you know, to be honest with you, you know, we had a, a pretty good weekend of boxing, especially the main fight card that took place or the main event on the fight card that took place yesterday. But before we get to that, you also have the NBA, you know, action that's going on. Like right now, I'm checking out this Milwaukee Bucks game. They kind of cook it here on the Chicago Bulls. But, you know, have you been checking out the playoffs? And then also, what do you think about, if you have, what do you think about that Celtics versus Nets series that's going on right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, th this playoffs is, you know, it's very interesting. It's ex it's exposing a, a lot of stuff. Uh, you brought up uh, Milwaukee. Um, Milwaukee is, is showing that they still, you know, a top tier team uh, because Chicago, Chicago is tough. And, but also Chicago it, you know, it's a weird team because they were doing so, so good in the regular season up until the end. They start faltering, you know, down. Because really, at one point, they were, you know, number one on the East. And I think they ended up ending the season at number four or something like that. Uh, but Milwaukee, you know, they got that dog in them, you know. Uh, and you brought up uh, <laughs> the, the, the Brooklyn series with, the, with Boston. I mean, man, Boston – about to take them out, man, playing that, that defense, man. And it's like, and, and that defense, man, it, it's, it's mentally just locking Kevin, Kevin Durant up where Durant has <laughs> pretty much been, you know, ineffective, you know? Um, but overall, when you look at the, the this playoffs, I, I, I like kind of where it's at because, you know, um, it's kind of showing you, man, team, you have to be a team to win this. You can't just be somebody out for stats. You have to play like a team. And I think that might, might, I don't know if that's particularly the issue with Brooklyn, but there is an issue where they're, they're not really, you know, meshing well enough to, to make everyone effective to, to win that series, you know, but this is, it's going to get exciting, especially when it, when it starts getting up to the semifinals and the, uh, the conference finals. They need a coach, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they, the, the Brooklyn Nets, they thought that they could just go out there with just the most talented, you know, we got the two best dudes, you know, each series or when we play and we just don't cook you like that. And it don't work, you know, especially like in the playoffs when you have teams, teams, like people who have defined roles, you have role players, you have um, a willingness to do what's in the best interest of the whole, you know what I mean? Like that's, what Boston is showing me. And the other thing that it's showing is like, they phase them out like the older guys, you know what I mean? Like the younger dudes is really taking over the league. You know, the Bucks is not an old team already. They like the number one team in the league with a with a young stud like uh, Giannis who's, who's in his prime, I should say. But then you got these younger teams, man. Like they really are showing me something. And KD yesterday, it just looked like he didn't have that other gear, you know, to overcome like some bad stretches or the physicality that Boston is bringing. 
And Kyrie's always just been Kyrie to me in the playoffs with the exception of that one year, you know, when they won the finals, you know, he's kind of a, you know, sometimes he might kill and sometimes he may not, you know, it's just one of those things. But overall, I don't like it when I'm seeing. And like you said, the Bucks, they got smacked around that one game because uh, the Rose, he was just killing. You know, you have those days. And then also you had a couple of injuries that took place and, um, you know, Chicago got them in. But I think that that woke them up. And then the Warriors, they've been looking good. And I like what I've seen from Ice Trey. Ice Trey was cooking against the Heat, but I just think the Heat's going to have too much for them. 76, I think they're going to finish off the Raptors probably on Monday. And then the Jazz and Mavs, that can go either way. Suns, they caught a bad break with that Booker injury. And then the T-Wolves and Grizzlies, just some young guns going at it. You know, I, I would favor the Grizzlies moving forward. Um, but, because I just think Carl Anthony Towns has got to do too much for them to win. Like, come on, man, you got to make every play. Like, how can you do that for a seven-game series? But, man, you know, like I said, we here to talk boxing. That's what we do. You know, we might have to do another podcast where we just talk basketball. But, you know, we'll talk about that off here. Now, let's go ahead and go to the – what were they fighting in the U.K. when you had Tyson Fury and uh, Dillian White? Uh, what do you think about the Gypsy King, Bill? Yeah, it was definitely the uh, U.K. because, you know, with those fights come on at, like, 5 p.m. over here. It's like uh, it, it kind of alters my time. But but on the flip side, at least it's, it's not one of them late, you know, fights where they enter the ring at, like, almost midnight or anything like that. But – before uh, before you get started, which one do you prefer? Uh, I, I prefer the the way when, when fights are televised, and I'm not even saying Showtime because Showtime has their stuff a little late too. I prefer kind of how ESPN set PPN sets it up because normally they get in and get out, man. They're out by by, by midnight, and they're done, you know. Or uh, I would actually prefer even earlier than that, you know. The, the time that I prefer is the one they would never do is half fights come on about seven, eight o'clock. You know, yeah, I mean? they messing up, man. Like that would be a perfect timing so that they could like get all of the viewership. You know, right. you got some of those fights coming on. Some of them be coming on like twelve o'clock by the time yeah. the main event hit. Like that's just too late to me. But yeah, yeah, PBC did it, did do it at first, and and and, and I, I really enjoyed those. They should have them on regular television because, of course, they're not gonna you know, have, have, you know, fights overlapping the news. So, yeah, yeah they just come about 8, 9 o'clock and be done with, you know. Um, but, yeah, you know, maybe we get back to that. Maybe we get back to, you know, say the Saturday afternoon, like 1 p.m., 2 p.m. fights, you know what I'm saying, just to come on back yeah. in the day. Yeah, you know? I just think, you know why I think they don't do that? There's just too much sports, too many sporting events that come on during that time. Like, yeah. college football, football, well, you know, NFL wouldn't affect it, but this is a little, you know, you got basketball, like I'm watching, like I say, the Bucks right now. So they might be a little bit, you know, scared to compete with that. Right, right. But going to this this Fury White fight, um, really Tyson Fury, he, he basically did what he wanted to do. You know, he was up for this fight. Uh, and that was a question that I, I had. I thought that, you know, Fury, you know, sometimes he gets, when he has these really, really good performances, he comes down and he, you know, he, he goes off and do his thing outside the ring. And, you know, uh, in the next fight, he's usually, you know, he doesn't impress as much. But this fight was, was pretty impressive. You know, um, he came out uh, using his jab, man, using movements. 
Uh, actually, the first round was kind of, you know, even to me. Like, I, I really couldn't tell what was happening. But as, as long as, you know, Fury was controlling, kind of, you could tell he was kind of controlling the fight, it was fine for him. But then, you know, the second round and stuff like that, you know, um, uh, Fury started to move a little bit. Um, and White, de- dealing out White just let him get way too comfortable. Um, and once Fury got comfortable moving around, using angles and, and popping that jab and, and, and and it wasn't even like a, a hard jab. It was just a, a, a pawing jab enough to keep uh, White at range. And White really couldn't really get under it and, and get close. And when he did, Fury would grab him, you know, t- not even like use his entire weight on him. He would just turn him a little bit and just use little movements that just threw uh, Dillian White off. And, and White really couldn't use that. He couldn't land that that left hook that, that <laughs> normally hurts guys, you know, uh, so really, you know, once Dillian White started dropping his hands around the fourth, uh, fifth round, I knew it was just, uh, you know, this fight's not going to be be good. But I never could predict what would happen because I thought, you know, he's just going to get hit a few times and, and something's going to happen. He's going to, his corner's going to retire eventually in this fight. But the sixth round, you know, I, I think about two minutes in, uh, of course, Dillian White, you know, has hands kind of, you know, he, he he was open, like his hands was kind of down, but it was just open. It, it was really open for that uppercut, and and Fury landed that that vicious, you know, right uppercut, you know, um, timed him and got it off, uh, and and Dillian White really didn't see it, um, so it, it put him down. He tried to get back up, um, and it was interesting because. The ref could have actually allowed that to go on. The, the ref, the only the thing that 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 <laughs> stopped this fight, as the ref asked Dillian White to come towards him. If he wouldn't have done that, Dillian White probably wouldn't have like you know stumbled over. It would it would have been a crazier stoppage because you know of course Fury would have landed more punches on him. But the, the ref was smart in this fight. He saw something, maybe looked in <laughs> Dillian White's eyes and knew that he couldn't walk forward because when he did, he just knew he was just out on his feet, kind of. Uh, so Tyson Fury, he improved to 32 and 0 with one draw and 23 knockouts. And Dillian White, he fell to 28-3 with 19 knockouts. And moving forward, um, Fury, uh, he was always, he always kind of stating that, you know, he, this was it or he was going to retire after the, uh, the, the, the Deontay Wilder fight. Um, and then when this fight was announced, he said he would retire after this fight. So it looks like he's sticking to, you know, his guns on this. He says that, that he's probably going to retire. He's, he's, he's saying things like, I promised my wife for 14 years that I would hang it up. This, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, will he hang it up? Who knows? This is boxing. You know, we, we see boxers come back all the time for, you know, um, to, to, to regain their glory, paydays, mental health, what have you. They always, a lot of them normally come back. Um, but if he doesn't, you know, hopefully he enjoys his, you know, retirement, but if he does, you know, the, the, the only fight that I would probably want to see him against is, um, the, the Joshua Usyk winner, the winner of that fight. Uh, I know someone else brought up, uh, uh, said that Jared Anderson will be a good fight for him. I mean, maybe in terms of, you know, something we haven't seen yet, but I, I'm not sure if Jared Anderson is really ready for that 
at this time. But, you know, I mean, you know, good performance for Tyson Fury, you know, hopefully he rides in the sunset, and, you know, that's it. Tyson Fury is not retiring. He, he said that, but every indication in terms of how he was talking seemed like he's fighting again. You know, he had Nagano in the ring. He had uh, his wife was saying that, oh, he'll fight Usyk or Joshua when, you know, he'll come out of retirement for that. But everything he was, his body language was the fact, was, was, was a matter of fact, I'm, I'm still fighting. It's just something that he told his wife. And at the end of the day, what's going to happen is he's going to be at home. And, you know, he's going to be antsy. And he, she's going to say, you know what, honey, you kept your promise. It's okay. You can go ahead and go back to fight. And that's, that's how it's going to go. Now, as far as what I saw out there in the UK, I thought that Tyson Fury put him a masterpiece. He was like a top chef, you know, an executive chef. He, he cooked white like a delicious meal. You know, as I'm watching the fight, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the movements. Tyson Fury look real He's, little, he's chubby, chubbier in the midsection. But I don't think that that's a lack of him training. I think it's just more so as he gets older and his physique is hard for him to lose weight in that area, you know. But he looks so fleet of foot. Like he was just moving around, bouncing around. And what I like most about him is he has that little herky-jerky um, head movement that he does, you know, on a consistent basis. The top level guys do that. You'll see Usyk, like Usyk's always moving. He always got his head going somewhere. Canelo does it. And you, you just notice that with the top level guys. As I stated, he cooked white like a delicious meal. Fury won every, I would say, minute of this fight, um, every round. I mean, white won a few seconds, but that's pretty much it. First round, white came out to the surprise of everyone. He was in a southpaw stance. But he's not a good softball. So, you know, it was, I guess, the bison time and confused Fury a little bit, but you're not going to confuse Fury at this stage of his career. He's at the, at the pinnacle of his career. And that's another reason why I don't want to see him retire is because he just looks so good right now. Uh, Fury, the first round, was just pretty much filling things out, you know, kind of like a meal prep. You know, you, you, you put your stuff there, you're trying to figure out like what ingredients I'm going to put in here, when am I going to put it in there, you know, but I just think he did enough to win the first round. Round two, he flipped the script. So Fury initially came out in southpaw stance and White went back to the conventional stance. Fury began to get more comfortable. Then that's when he started doing the peppering. He started peppering with the jab. Um, and then White, he was looking um, like his feet were like, he was so stagnant and, and I wouldn't say robotic. He was like, he was um, plotting a lot, you know, and I don't know if that was because he was fighting Fury and Fury is just quicker than the guys he's faced before, or he's just at that stage of his career, or it could be the additional weight um, that he put on a stone or two that they were saying out there in the UK. Um, but like I said, he was just sauteing. He was sauteing his meat, you know, marinating uh, old Dillian White in the second rounds. Rounds three through five, White progressively started to slow down. It was like, you know, when you put that meal in the crock pot, and you put it on medium, and it's slowly, you know, cooking, and that, that's what Fury was doing to And so, oh, oh yeah, absolutely. So I'm turning this into the cooking show. You understand what I'm saying? So Fury, you know, he had a nice bounce, like I said, in his movements, but he was just steady, you know, doing what he needed to do to get White where he wanted. So round six comes around. This was time for 
furious service meal. And so at this time, like you said, towards the end of the sixth round, he caught him with the uppercut. White has been susceptible to the uppercut from vacant. A lot of times he gets dropped by that uppercut. It's like he got a blind spot there. And so with the beautiful uppercut, Fury smoked White like turkey wings. And so meal was served, fight was over. He was kind of shaky, like you said, the referee did his job. You know, he looked and he saw that he wasn't right. And so he ended up um, putting a halt to the fight at the end of the sixth round. Very good job by the referee. Excellent job by Tyson Fury. Like you said, Fury's talking about retiring, um, but you look, like you say, he still has fights out there. Regardless if AJ wins or loses, that fight is still huge in the UK. You got Usyk, um, that's a huge fight. Whoever wins, that's like a mega fight. And then you got the Nagano um, UFC killer that they can put that cross um, promotional cross sport event that they're talking about putting on, and that would be huge as well. So it's, I just want to see Fury fight again, especially right now, because he's at the best, um, at the peak of his powers. It was awesome to see, man. Um, shout out to Fury also for coming out to that big yesterday. I like when guys come out and you know, you can feel the vibe of them as they enter the ring. It just gets you hyped up and, and ready to see the showcase, you know, of what's going to take place. And then also, shout out to him for performing like a top chef, a master chef, an executive chef, worthy of owning his own restaurant in Manhattan in Hell's Kitchen. So shout out to you, Gypsy King. You got anything else in that fight, Phil? No, it's a beautiful performance. Oh, thank well, you, sir. Thank you, sir. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. But, uh, oh, yeah, one question I would ask. Where, where do you think Deleon White go from here? Like, what, what's the future holds? What should he do? Is there anything that he should, you know, improve at this point? Um, Dylan White has a blind spot. He's always going to be susceptible to that uppercut. It's like his chin didn't... Um, it didn't, you know, how, how some people get knocked out and they like a little chinny. He's not chinny anywhere else outside of there. Like once he gets hit there, it's just like, oh, that's it. So he 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 has to be cognizant of that moving forward and picking and choosing the fighters that he's he's gonna face. Now he's not gonna fight. When I think about the heavyweight division, he could possibly have some success against some of those guys because he has that wicked left hook. Yesterday, it was one time where he almost caught. Fury. I think it was around the fourth round or so. He almost got it. He just missed, but that was his only shot. Um, some other guys he, he faced, unless he gets clipped, he's always going to be in, in the fight. Um, I think that him and Chisora, you know, they might want to do it again, but outside of that, I'm just a little bit concerned for him because he's taken a lot of punishment. He got knocked out by Fury, Cole, pretty much, almost. And then you got the Bavakian fight. Um, you had the Joshua fight. But he's been in some wars. You know, there's been some times where the Chisora fights were wars. So he's getting to that point where he's going to have to make a serious decision to just pick and choose fights. If he chooses to move on, that is just something that he definitely – has to do before he hangs him up, but uh, Chisor or someone like that, if he's going to fight again. What about you? What say you? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on one point that, yeah, if he decides to go on, he should, you know, take a fight like, you know, I call him, I call him to do his brother, uh, Derek Chisora, because they look so much alike, even not related. Uh, yeah, I would take a fight with Derek Chisora if he needs to continue, you know. Um, that's a, a fight that he could 
you know, still win. But even then, it still has some element of danger that he could be up for because Chisora is still is wild enough to hurt him. Um, but yeah, I, I think I would want to see him in a top level fight of this magnitude, like against a another Joshua or even a Usyk or anyone like that, until you know he he improves on his game or, or he rebuilds himself in an adequate adequately enough that I want to see him against those guys and feel that he won't get hurt against those top guys. But you know, it's gonna be it'd be hard like at this stage of his career to be able to do that because sometimes you train as hard as you can just the body and mind at this particular point the mind might be there but it's just the body it may not be able to pull off what it is you're attempting to do but you know we'll see you yeah. definitely uh, have some heart as a warrior yeah we'll see we'll see so moving right along um on may 14th we have a rematch uh, and an anticipated rematch uh for the unification of the light middleweight title at 154 pounds, and this includes all four belts. I'm talking about the rematch between uh, Jermail Charlo and Brian Castaño. Uh, what are your thoughts on on, on this fight, uh, Will, and who you, who you got winning this fight? In this one, you got Jermail Ironman Charlo, 34-1-1 with 18 KOs. He's six feet, 73-inch reach. He's 31 years of age, and then he'll be taking the ring with uh, Brian Castaño, El Boxy, who's 5'7 and a half, 17 two draws with 12 KOs. He's 32 years of age. Um, Castaño is a, a fighter who definitely brings the pressure, brings the heat. He outworks his opponents. Um, he just overwhelms them. And you saw a lot of that in the fight that took place, the first fight that these guys had, which was a barn burner, man. I, that was um, almost close to like a classic right there. Jamel, he's a good boxer puncher, you know, has pretty, pretty good power in his punches. Big 154 pound guy, you know, with a, with a pretty good resume. Last fight, a lot of people were surprised at how well Kastanya performed in that first fight. I wasn't because of this. I just mentioned Mel has, if you think about the sport of boxing and guys in their division, he has a really good resume. Matter of fact, a great resume. But if you kind of critically look at, at his resume, I think it's more than meets the eye. Like you say, oh man, he, he's fight fought like some of the best competition and, and, and also his accomplishments too, you know, being having all of those belts at 154. But as I think about it, I'm like, okay, Rosario, he beat Rosario. And his claim to fame, Rosario's claim to fame was beating Williams, like who was kind of overconfident. He also has a win over Austin Trout, but Austin Trout was about maybe 46 at the time. And he beat Lubin. Lubin at the time was really green. And then uh, Charles Hatley, I saw Charles Hatley against um, Augustus. Uh, the drunken master back in like 2010 over there at Grand Prairie and he ended up getting dropped by Emmanuel Augustus and then he went on to win a 10 round decision but when the, by the time he made it to fighting Mel and they were making that out to be kind of a big fight I'm like Charles that was not that good you know and he ended up you know knocking him out now the fights with Harrison he defeated him but he went life and death with Harrison Harrison won the first fight he won the second fight so 
when the fight was made between him and Castaño, I was just thinking that Castaño was the best opponent that he had faced to, to date and that he was also the trickiest because Mel had never fought somebody like a Castaño, you know, and vice versa, you know. Now, this uh, second time, he's, this is the second time Mel is going into a rematch. Uh, the first time against Harrison, as I stated in another video, I didn't see many adjustments being made by Jermail Charlo outside of him being just a little bit more patient and a little bit more calculated. And it did pay off because he was able to score a knockout late in the fight. Mel hasn't prepared, he wasn't prepared for the pressure last time. So being patient could, you know, work in his favor. And when somebody's fighting like a sign, they put applying all of that pressure, you don't want to be frenetic, you know, yourself with someone who's pressured like that. Matter of fact, you want to be the opposite. So you do want to, you know, exude or exhibit patience, you know, when they come in kind of, he doesn't come in reckless, but he comes in very aggressively. Um, in that first fight, Mel got caught and hurt and so I thought that that kind of had him a little hesitant too at certain points until he felt like he was down. And then he made a pretty good, you know, gallant effort to come back into the fight. And that's what made it the draw. The key for Charlo would be, will be patience and setting up the Sanyo for the uppercut because there's going to be times, unless Castanio corrects the mistakes that he was making coming in. He's open for the uppercut. It's just Mel wasn't shooting that shot. He was more so, like I said, he was overwhelmed by the pressure. So that's not something that he really was, was focusing in on. Now, if he does land an uppercut, you know Mel is a mean finisher. He's one of the best finishers in the game. So he'll get Castanio out of there, I believe, if he gets him in trouble um, this go around. And actually, they both had each other in trouble. I think Mel had Castanio in trouble maybe two or three times as well in that fight. Now, this is a tough one to predict because Mel is the bigger, stronger fighter, and he can always end things with just one big shot. Castanio, he's slightly better to me skill-wise. He has the better amateur pedigree, um, but he's, he's going to have to be on point for all 36 minutes in order to secure this victory. Now, my prediction is going to be kind of a, you know, a lot of people are not going to, you know, agree with this. But I'm actually predicting an upset, but I don't think that that's what's going to shock people. It's the fact that I think that Castaño is going to win a stoppage between rounds 10 and 12. I think that Mel, his inability to make the necessary adjustments, and he was getting tagged a lot that last fight. I think that last fight took out a lot more of him than what a lot of people think, because in the interview that they had recently, they were asking him what he did wrong. And the one thing that he did was willing to say was that he let, he said, I let that MF hit me too much, which was true. But if you see that first fight, that was a brutal fight. And it was really, like I said, it was a slept on fight because they both were just throwing some punches. It wasn't a lot of holding or anything like that. It was just really good boxing. And I just think once Castaño starts to put that pressure on him and he starts to clip him a little bit more, either he's going to not throw as much. And I can see his corner man 
Like, come on, man, if you don't, you know, like show me something, I'm gonna stop the fight. And I just think that that's what's gonna end up happening in this one. And I think that that's gonna happen later in the fight. So my prediction is that stoppage by Brian Castillo between rounds 10 and 12. Old prediction. Wow, that would be interesting. Wait, you, you're right. This is a hard fight to predict because of the nature of the, the first fight. Um, so, like you said, Charlo, boxer puncher, uh, he, he, he's patient a lot of times, but he does have a mean streak. If he gets you hurt, he's, he's getting you out of there, and he has, you know, killer instinct, uh, pretty strong chin. Uh, but Castillo is kind of the only one who, who had the code to crack that chin a little bit. So we saw Jamel a little vulnerable uh, in the first fight. Uh, and Castaño also, or Castaño was hurt also. But I, I expected Charlo to, to, to hurt Castaño uh, a few times in that fight. Um, but Castaño, strong chin also. So, and, and, and he did recuperate uh, against Charlo. Um, and Castaño, what I like about Castaño too, is, is even though he's this, this uh, pressure, volume puncher, he uses his height to an advantage. You know, when you say someone has a height advantage or, or, or height disadvantage, he uses his lack of height as an advantage where sometimes he comes in low enough where, where someone has to punch down at him. He can just move slightly left or slightly right and it's harder to hit him than you, than you think. Um, but when he but when he get inside a punching range, he goes to work. Uh, and that prevents a, a lot of people from, you know, throwing more shots. It, it, make, it makes... Uh, fighters more tentative um but in this fight um i mean i have to trust uh that derrick james is getting Charlo ready for this this type of a fight uh i i know Charlo probably went back and watched that tape you know and derrick james watched it with him uh, but i do think when this fight start off the first few rounds it'll be like round 13 and round 14 i think it's gonna be the same thing uh i think Castaño is going to might come out even more aggressive, uh, forcing Charlo to come out aggressive. But I, but I, I do think that Charlo might. Uh, I think I, I think Charlo because you said that 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 Castaño was open for that that you know uppercut, um, and Castaño. I think Charlo is going is, is going to land that uppercut, and and I, I can, and and I like the way his. The, one, one fight I keep going back to is that Erickson Lubin fight. And I, I watched that same uppercut in slow motion. It's weird how he caught that punch and, 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 and landed the uppercut with, with the same hand. And I think Charlo doesn't get enough credit for how he sets up shots. And I think this is going to be a display where he's going to sh- set a shot up. He's going to run Castaño to a shot. He's going to hurt Castaño. And I, I have... Um, Charlo win this fight by stoppage mid to late rounds. I would say about round seventh, seventh or eighth. That's what, and that's how I see this fight going. Anything else yet you want to share? No, there's nothing else that I want to share because the fight is just that close and it could go either way. You can have, I can see Charlo like tapping him and getting him hurt at any point in the fight. And Stanley could be having all types of success. He's just a big, strong junior middleweight so i could see that happen i'm just you know when i'm looking at this i'm saying like likely scenario but in this situation anything's possible so and i can also see see the thing is i think charlo see i was listening to the press conference the last one right 
And I was also reading the comments of what people were saying. And Castaño was answering questions, but the people who were listening to the interpreter say what he was saying that Castaño was saying. They were saying, man, that dude was instigating. He's not saying that. <laughs> so, but the stuff that he was saying that Castaño was saying, he said something to the, to the effect that um, he's going to beat up Mel for like all the stuff that he was talking. He's going to knock him out and blah, 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 this and that. And so that was just riling Mel up. So the reason why um, that's a big deal to me is, let's say, for instance, because I think Charlo could, if he wanted to, he could box, like just use that stiff jab because he used to do that more before he got with Derrick James. He was a boxer and he didn't get that many knockouts, but now he's sitting down with his punches more. And he's, he's willing to like exchange a lot more now the fact that he has that confidence to know that he can sit these dudes down. So I don't think that he would be happy with just boxing Castaño. He's going to want to get in there and land some mean stuff on him. But by doing so, he's going to leave himself to something. That's how he got hurt in the third round. They were doing an exchange, and then boom, Castaño caught him and, and um, bumped him. You know, but he on a couple of occasions, Castaño was opening up and he was landing some heavy shots on Charlo. So that's what I'm saying. I don't know how this thing is going to play out. All I'm anticipating is a great fight, though. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a, uh, I can't see this not being an exciting fight. I, I can't at all. Absolutely. All right. So April 30th on the undercard under of the Serrano Taylor Dream Bout that's going to take place. You have, Former welterweight champ Jesse Vargas. He's going to be fighting against 154 pound contender Liam Beefy Smith. Uh, who do you like in that one, Bill? Yeah, this, this one's an interesting fight, you know, because you have Jesse Vargas uh, moving up to doing 154 for the first time against someone who fought pretty much his entire career at, you know, 154 um, and, and Liam Smith. Uh, so Jesse Vargas, he's coming in this fight 29, 3, and 2 with 11 knockouts. Uh, a tall 5'11 with a 71-inch wingspan. He has a, a big wealth of experience ever since his uh, loss to Pacquiao, where he was you know, pretty much dominated, but he, he wasn't out. like He, he was still tough. He, he, he took his, his uh, shots in stride. But he did have a, a, a knockout victory against Saddam Ali, which I was very, very impressed with. And, and some of his other losses I was impressed with, uh, even the Mikey Garcia loss where Garcia, you know, was able to knock Vargas down. I was impressed that he actually did, you know, catch Garcia with some, some good shots, which had Mikey kind of wary and buzz a little bit. And, and also he had his loss with uh, Timothy Bradley, where uh, he hurt Bradley pretty much in the 12th round, really, really late, um, with the same right hand that he hurt Saddam Ali with. So I thought that, 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 you know, Jesse Vargas is one of these underrated guys. I mean, he's going to be a tough out for just about anyone. Um, but I guess Liam Smith, you know, he's, he's, he's uh, has two wins over uh, Liam Williams, which he gained his namesake. I said that whoever win it, wins that fight gets to uh, carry on with the name of Liam, <laughs> and he won it. Uh, but he did have his knockout uh, loss to uh, Canelo, uh, Canelo Alvarez in 2016. Uh, and this this fight is gonna be interesting because Smith is a is a you know he's a average size 154 pounder 
he's solid. Like when you look at him, he's a pretty solid 154 pounder. Um, but I think he's kind of, he, he, he has his high guard and, and he has, he, he doesn't really have a lot of special effects and he moves kind of slow. Um, I think th- th- this fight is going to be, uh, I think Vargas, the one thing that's underrated about this fight is I think Vargas is going to have a crazy speed advantage over him. And Liam Smith, I, I think that once Vargas started landing those right hands that, that he normally lands where, you know, he, he's, he's crouched down, he just shoots this long right hand, you know, uh, and keep in mind, um, he probably has a either the same reach as Liam Smith or probably even a longer reach and he's taller. Um, so he's going to be able to land some interesting shots and Vargas doesn't give, you know, enough credit for, you know, how he fights. I mean, he's very passionate. These guys are kind of opposite where Vargas is really, really overpassionate about being in the fight and Liam Smith really isn't, you know, he's just there. Um, so I'm going to go on, on a limb and say that, 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 uh, Speed will be a difference in this fight. And I think Vargas is going to land too many right hands on, on Liam Smith. And he's going to stop him probably mid to late round stoppage. Okay. When you say mid to late round, you get around, huh? Because then you be trying to, oh, it was fourth round. Okay. Okay. I, I think it'll be about maybe, you know, I'll say the, the seventh round. He's going to, those punches going to accumulate on Liam Smith. I think Vargas, um, when you look at his knockout percentage, he looks like he just can't crack. But I think more so, he's not really an awesome finisher or anything like that. But if he want to get you, if he, if he hurts someone, he, he can't get him out of there, as we saw with Saddam Ali. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think that when I look at how they fight, I think Vargas is a sharper puncher. And I think and I can't see how Liam Smith is going to stand up to make a hit like that over and over again. And because and, 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 I think Smith is going to stand right in front of Vargas too much. And that's the wrong thing to do. You got to have, you know, something, I mean, be able to move or something or have a strong, uh, excellent chin. Uh, I, I think it's the accumulation of punches is going to be too much. And I think Vargas is just going to tee off on Smith and he's going to stop him. Probably seventh, seventh round. I mean, I think Vargas is a better fighter. I think the issue here more so is his inactivity that he's been that he's been having. And then also um, there's two things with Marcus, just the inactivity. And then what I've noticed with him is that he starts off fast, but he has a tough time down the stretch, at least when I saw him fight against Broner, because he was beating Broner like the first five rounds. And then Broner stays the comeback and he didn't really have any answer. You know, Broner is a better fighter than Liam Smith at that time he, he was. And then also against um, Garcia. Garcia, he was started off really good. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was like tip to tap. Then he got dropped in the fifth. And then he was just showing heart against Garcia. But to me, when I look at his punch output towards the middle and lighter part of the fight, it wasn't nearly what it was at the beginning. I think that early in this fight, he's going to have a lot of success against Smith because Smith is right there in front of him. In their last fights, like I said, he uh, and Vargas they lost to Mikey Garcia. That was like two years ago in that 12-round decision. And then Liam Smith just beat Anthony Fowler in an eighth-round TKO. Fowler was just letting Smith have it. 
Like he was just until like the fifth round, he hung in there and he caught. But he was a huge underdog against Fowler. Fowler has a lot of uh, good uh, amateur or had a lot of good amateur success. And he was coming on the pros, so they were thinking that he was going to be next up in the UK. But Leno Smith put a halt to that. The other fight that the other two lost, you mentioned Canelo. He also has a 12 round decision loss against uh, Jaime Mugia and then Mahmo um, Kabanov, which was a controversial loss that he had. So, Lim Smith, you know, he really only has two fights that he lost that are without controversy, right? So, I think that he's going to have, he's going to be confident going into this one. You know, the fact that he's bigger, you know, he's a lifelong. 154-pound fighter, and he has Jesse Vargas, who also, in addition to the inactivity, the fact that he gets a little bit fatigued towards the end of fights, Jesse Vargas also, mine, has been on, he's been, like, TV, on TV, and then he also is a politician. Speaking of that, let me go ahead and, um, you know, as far as his political views, so he's out there, they call him a proud Las Vegas. He is running as a Republican for, in the you know, for the Congress, for one of the Congress seats in um, Las Vegas. Now, here's the thing, what he's standing on, and I know this is about boxing, but this is the reason why, and I just, I'm not rooting for Liam Smith because I don't want to just root for him because of the fact that maybe if he was fighting against somebody else, I would root for them just based on this, but not Liam Smith. I just, Vargas turned me off with this right here. Okay, so he says pro-life, He's pro-guns and he's pro-family. Cool. Commend you, sir. Great job. He says, and having strong law enforcement. So that's what end up having my antennas up. I'm from for strong law enforcement as well, but a lot of times when people say that, then they be against other things as well. I just want to wish I could hear more about his political views when you talk about, is it like the Blue Lives Matter type position you take, sir? And then this is what really turned me up when he says he's an opposition to critical race theory. A lot of people don't even know what critical race theory is, but that, that also is a, is a symbol for the fact that you are against a specific group from what I understand and what I've been saying. So that's what's turning me off on um, Mr. Vargas here. Um, but as far as this fight is concerned, I think that Vargas is better. He's a better boxer, um, but like I say, he just hasn't fought, you know, enough. And this fight is going to be the fourth in four years, you know. So, and like I said, he's been so into politics and he's been so into like TV and things like that that I don't know if his, his mind is truly on boxing. I think he got one foot in, one foot out. He's been talking about retiring and things like that. So, I'm actually going to go with Liam Smith in this one. I think that Beefy has been active, he's like a truly in the sport, he has the heart of a lion. And I just think that if the fight is anywhere close between rounds uh, one through five, then you'll see Smith kind of take over, you know, towards the end of the fight. So my prediction is going to be Little Smith by 12 round decision. I think it's going to be maybe eight to four. Um, but you can't like play boxing like that, you know. And I, I just think that if Vargas would have stuck with it, that you know, this would be more like a um, tune-up fight for bigger and better things. But I just think that he put himself in a situation where that inactivity is going to play a role. And I think Smith is on a roll.
And so I have Smith in this. Anything else you got? No, sir. So moving along uh, on July 17th, I'm July 16th, I'm sorry. Which my birthday. Happens, it's my birthday, brother. Yeah, which happens to be Will, Will's birthday. Uh, we have uh, some heavyweight giants going at it. We got uh, Andy Ruiz Jr. going up against Louis Ortiz. Uh, what are your thoughts on that and who you got winning this fight? Yeah, so uh, Andy Ruiz, that this fight is going to take place in Mexico City. So that's going to play a factor in the outcome to me in this fight you know, as well, because I rarely see guys fight out there in Mexico who's from Mexico and lose. So this, this is going to be interesting from that standpoint. And also, you know, they got a lot of that tainted meat out there in Mexico too. So, you know, we'll see how that plays into the outcome as well. Now, Andy Ruiz, he's 32 years of age, 6'2". He's about 854 pounds. He's uh, 34'2 with 22 KOs. Ortiz, on the other hand, is a softball, 78-inch reach, 33-2 with 28 KOs and two losses came to the Bronze Bomber, Deontay Wilder in two wars. And Mr. Ortiz, King Kong, is 69 years old. Now, as far as who they fought uh, last, they both had two wars. Like Chris Ariola, uh, Andrew Ruiz fought. Uh, he, he was in there brawling, and he got dropped in a second round. He got hurt on several occasions against Luis, uh, I'm sorry, Chris Ariola. But he likes to brawl. You know, he has fast hands, and he has that really nice one, too. To me, like some of the things that is troublesome with him is sometimes his condition, and then also the lack of discipline. Because like I said, he's not known, whatever pounds I said he was, he blew up to almost 300 pounds in his rematch with Anthony Joshua. And you would think that that was like the biggest fight of your career. Like, why would you do that? You know, just to make any sense. So discipline is going to be an issue with him. And then uh, King Kong Ortiz, like I said, he had a brutal war with uh, Charles Martin. I think a lot of that was the fact that he has a lot of inactivity. He was fighting the softball for the first time in a long time. And I say he's old. So you just... Never know when you try to go to the well and it's just not there. Um, but I think a lot of that, like I said, had to deal with ring runs. But he got dropped in the sixth round. He got dropped in the first or second round. One of the times it was with a jab. And another time he just got caught with a nice left. But he was in a position as big as Charles Martin is and as long as Charles Martin is, he was just in line for that left hand until he made an adjustment, maybe like third or fourth round. And then he started to pick it up. But I thought what I saw from him he started to find his groove about the fifth, sixth round. And then he was able to take out uh, Charles Martin. He clipped him with a, a nice left. And then Charles Martin started talking to somebody in the third row. I don't know who he was talking to, but after that, you know, it was a wrap. Now, um, as far as Ortiz, what he brings to the table, big puncher, man, can box. Highly skilled, one of the most highly skilled guys in boxing, you know what I mean? As, as far as the heavyweight division, like I said, the only issue with him is sometimes he could be a little chinny, like when he gets clipped on the chin. I think partly the reason why that's the case is Wilder, those Wilder Wars has um, kind of softened him up a little bit. And like I say, he's 71 years old too. So that, that doesn't help. And then also the inactivity. To me, at their best, Ortiz is a better fighter, although um, they're fighting in Mexico City. And like I said, it's a lot of tainted meat out there. I have Ortiz winning a seventh or eighth round stoppage in this one. I'm thinking that the old man is going to have one more left 
I just think Ortiz, based on what I saw with him and some of his fights, like Areola, I know he probably was a little bit overconfident. It's just that Ortiz is accurate too. And so I think if he's going to be tagging Areola, not Areola, if he's going to be tagging Ruiz enough, that he's going to eventually get him out of there. And I think that the boxing skills of Ortiz is going to show. And he's just, like I say, just a slightly better in most areas than Andrew Ruiz. So that's how I have the seventh round, eighth round TKO win uh, for the Cuban sensation. Yeah, this is an interesting fight that could go either way. And a lot of it depends on what condition both guys are in. With Louis Ortiz, you, you mentioned his age, which, you know, he, he's 43 years old. And that's just what's stated. I mean, I've heard rumors he's older than that. Um, but Andy Ruiz, you know, he's one of those guys, man, at, at his best when he trains. I mean, I, would, I mean, he would have a, I would have, give him a good chance to, to upset Louis Ortiz. Uh, if he's at his best, you know, he's a very, very fast guy for someone who looks the way he does. Um, but I, but for some reason, I, I, if, I, if you're going to ask me to put money on it, like if you put a gun in my head and say, who do I pick? I can't put marbles on a guy who went into a fight with Anthony Joshua, a rematch of Anthony Joshua when he had the world pretty much on his shoulders. You know, he was, he basically made history as the first uh, Mexican heavyweight champion ever. Uh, something that, someone like Chris Ariola would have probably gave his left arm to do at this point, you know, Andy Ruiz achieved it. And he went to a fight with, um, with Anthony Joshua, and the biggest fight of his career and, he, and just wasn't at his best. You know, he didn't, he basically, the people who root for him is basically like, just wasn't disciplined. Um, so I, I, and someone actually, I heard someone say once upon a time when this fight, when that fight happened, that Andy Ruiz won't be the same. Like this is the most important fight, and he pretty much blew his chance. And at the time, I was like, Nah, you know, he'll have, he'll do some better things. But based off the last fight, Ariola, it showed like that just the fact that he got away with that discipline, you know, and. and just by him being having a tough chin, he didn't get stopped in the Anthony Joshua match, but he didn't really look good. Um, and he struggled a little bit against Chris Ariola. Um, and Louis Ortiz, you know, of course, he he's more susceptible than he used to susceptible than he used to be. Um, and some of that could be the Wilder uh, matchups that that happened, where I guess up to this point, Wilder is the only one that can stop him. And Wilder, Deontay Wilder, pretty much drops everyone he's been in the ring with and can stop just about anyone. Um, but also I think Louis Ortiz is, you know, that age is catching up with him and he's getting to have, he's being forced to rely more on his skills than, than, than his physical attributes. But uh, as for a pit, I, I can't, I'll I have to agree with you, Will. I'll, I'll have Louis Ortiz stopping uh, Andy Ruiz by round, by round seven. Sir, all right. So you got that matchup that's going to take place, man. You know, shout out to my man, man Ortiz, for now starting to get some fights and some recognizable names in his resume. Like I said, although he's like 78 years old, you know, it's just at least now because he has that situation with his daughter and, you know, as many paydays as he can get to help her in her condition is the better, you know, for him and his family. So, 
you know, looking forward to that one. Now, prior to that, in the latter part of May, I believe this is on the Jamel Chow, Brian Castillo undercard, you have Jerron Boots Ennis. He's going to be taking on Castillo Clayton. Uh, Will, who do you have winning this one? Oh, man, shout out to you, Will, for putting that on my plate. Because as soon as I, I, I looked up Castillo Clayton, and his face came up, I was like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> so, um, Jerron Boots Ennis, um, 28 and no, 26 knockouts, 5 foot 10. I think he's actually taller than that when I look at him. Uh, with a 74-inch wingspan, he got these long arms against uh, Castillo War Machine Clayton, who's 19-0 and 1 with 12 knockouts, five foot nine with a 69-inch reach. Uh, and really, that draw should be a zero. It shouldn't be a draw because I thought I had him winning against Sergey Sergey Lipnitz. Um, so Ennis, he's this vicious boxer puncher, uh, has this crazy killer instinct. Uh, like I said, he's, he's a big guy. I think he's about 5'11", might be close to six feet. <laughs> uh, they, they probably uh, lower his height like they used to do with Paul Williams to me. Um, he's big for the weight. Um, and he, he fights at this weird rhythm when he throws his combination. It's like, it's not really a pow, pow, pow. It's a pow, pow, pow. He really loads up in his combinations. Um, do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, I had to do that. Uh, but at the same, at same time, he, he, he's, shown a he, he's shown a tough chin, but he's able to get caught in exchanges. Uh, now, Clayton, uh, very, he's, he's like, he's, like he's, he's a weird guy, weird case of being a veteran with not a lot of fights. He's kind of still on the rise as far as uh, his stance in a, in a welterweight division. But at 34 years old, he 40, 34 years of age. He seems more like a kind of a veteran in the sport. When I when I look at him, listen to him talk and how he fights and how he trains, he seems like someone who been hanging around the gym for a long time, probably about 20 plus years. So he, he's like that old head that don't, don't have a lot of wear and tear on his body. Um, he had he he fights in in, in in some. He has pretty good fundamentals. He fights at. Uh, he uses angles pretty well. He has this this high guard that he uses. Uh, he's very poised. Um, Wait, Bill, Bill, who are you talking about? Steve Rose? No, 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 Clayton. No, no, I'm just messing with you. That's that's they, they're the same person. You know what I mean? Preserve older guy, but yeah, yeah, he's very poised. <laughs> you know where where he he's so calm when 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 some of this stuff is going on when when, when he's in a firefight or someone's throwing punches at him. He doesn't seem like too like bothered. Like yeah, I've been here before. I see this all the time in the gym. So this is going to be an interesting fight. Uh, this is going to be probably one of Jerron Ennis's probably uh, best opponents that he's, he's fought. So the, the, the thing is, with, with uh, Clayton, I'm not sure. I have to, the question will be asked of both guys, of both Boots and, and Clayton, because Boots will get hit in this fight because Clayton is a, a pretty accurate counterpuncher. He throws a lot of counters in between shots, you know, and he's going to catch Ennis between those shots. So Ennis' chin will be tested. But I also would have to ask for, for Steel Clayton is how much activity, does he have enough activity to keep Ennis off him for the entire fight? And that's something that's going to, uh, we, we're going to see the answer to that when that fight happens. Uh, I kind of see this fight looking like a, a, a better version of, David Benavidez versus Kyron, Kyron Davis, where 
uh, Ennis will bring the pressure and bring that 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 strength and size to uh, steal Clayton. But I think Clayton may fare uh, better than Kyron Davis. I think his lack of activity and him waiting to get those counters off will be his undoing. But I do think he he sees the the, the final bell in this, and I have Teron Ennis winning uh, unanimous decision for the, for the first time. He, someone in, in how many years is going to go a distance with Teron Ennis? Uh, and I'll actually be if 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 Boots Ennis stops uh, Castillo Clayton, I'll, I'll be convinced that Boots is that guy. Hmm. Well, you think highly of Castillo Clayton. Um, now, this fight right here is going to, the winner is going to get a crack at the IBF belt at some point because they'll be the mandatory. And so that puts a little bit more at stake in this one, although at this point in Boots' career and the trajectory that he's on, you know, all fights are, are big for him. And he's been looking sensational. You mentioned uh, Clayton as being a really good fighter and and also you know it's probably boost's most stiffest uh opposition that he's faced yeah it could be it could be i think that delorme and lipinets those were good tests and he's around that level of guy he might just be slightly better than delorme and probably slightly better than lipinets even though it was a draw when those two faced off against each other but castillo clay was on a two weeks notice um type of fight um, against Lipinus. Now, he, well, this is what I noticed about Costio Clay. He, he throws some sneaky uppercuts. Um, he has a solid chin and he fights well on the back foot. Solid puncher and he seems pretty durable as well. Now, Boots is everything, you know, heavy puncher, lots of snap on those punches, big world to weight, switch hitter, excellent footwork. He got that Roy Jones ish type of athleticism. Um, and as you stated, sometimes he gets clipped and a fighter like Costio Clayton, as long as he's going to be in there, probably will have some chances. When I think about Boots, you know, the sky's the limit for him. But I remember as a Euchre, as a little, little baby, you know, not a baby, but I, I was really young. And it was a fight that came on ABC. And Boots always has me concerned. And that's why, like, when I watched fights, even yesterday with the Tyson Fury fight, I always, you know, you got to watch it from beginning to the end. Or, you know, even when guys are have like huge leads in a fight, because anything can end just, you know, within a blink of an eye, just with a snap of a finger. You know, you saw that with Tommy Hearns back in the day when he fought Iran Barkley. He was just letting Iran Barkley have it. Iran Barkley uh, threw a left hook that just caught Hearns and Hearns was out of there. But one fight in particular that always comes to mind when I'm watching boxing and somebody's up on scorecards is that Mike Weaver versus um, Big John Tate. Because in that fight, Big John Tate, he was already set up. So Muhammad Ali was about to come back. They didn't want Muhammad Ali to come back and face uh, somebody like Mike Weaver. But Mike Weaver was an underdog, huge underdog because he was a big puncher. So um, John Tate was winning the whole fight. I was just checking this fight out the other day. but And it just reminded me when I was a kid and I, I saw this. He, I'm talking about 15 rounds, he went in the whole fight every round and then towards the end of the fight he gets clipped with a left hook and he just went to sleep face first lost his wba belt no muhammad ali fight after that he was on drugs he ended up dying um, as a result 
Um, and so sad situation. Now, I'm just thinking like, I'm, I'm, and, and I'm not wishing this on anybody and I don't want this to happen to Boots, but I'm concerned because every time I watch him, even though he's annihilating these dudes, he always gets hit with something big. It's like, boom, but he takes it well. But I don't know how many times that if you end up getting caught at the right point, as much potential as you have, like that could be just thrown out the window. Your career could just be in a, go in a totally different direction. So that's the one thing that I hope Boots shores up is just those little moments because he's so aggressive when he's trying to finish somebody off or he sees the opening that sometimes he leaves himself vulnerable and open. He's a big, strong world to where he's able to take these shots against the level of opposition he's facing, but you just never know. I don't think that Custio Clayton is the guy that has enough pump, pop in his punches, although he does have pop in his punches to be able to do enough damage to in order to be able to stop the onslaught that's going to be coming i think he's going to have his moments he's going to test boots like for the first five rounds but i just think that clayton he doesn't have enough in his toolkit to be able to build on something sustainable enough to last for more than four or five rounds more than a few more than a few rounds and so i think boots is just too much right now and I expect him to win before eight. So at some point around there, he'll end up catching up to Custio Clayton. So my prediction is an eighth round stoppage for Boots in this. Anything else you got, Bill? No, sir. Uh, so on May 21st, uh, we have a fight against two boxing technicians. Uh, and I'm talking about Chevin Farmer versus Mickey Bay. Uh, what are your thoughts on this fight? Will, what do you see happening in this fight? Yeah, yeah, this is another one of those fights, man. When we were, like, early in the week, we were trying to figure out, like, some of the topics that we may discuss. This is one of the ones you rolled out, along with uh, John Pascal's coming back against somebody else as well. Now, when I text you back and I said that I'm not interested in Pascal, you know, it, a little bit too long in the tooth, and then I didn't know the guy he was facing, and I said that you can go ahead and have that one. I was also meaning this one as well, you know, because I'm like, man, you know, Mickey Bay is coming back. And, you know, I just, I knew the last time that he fought that it was a while ago, you know what I'm saying? And then everything else that I've been hearing from Mickey Bay is him training Devin Haney or the issues that he had with Mayweather. And I just never really was interested in a lot of those Mayweather fighters with the exception of Tank Davis. Like Jaylion Love, I'm like, Mayweather, his, his uh, like stable of fighters just was, was less than stellar to me, you know what I mean? So I'm like, it's like if you told me somebody like, uh, I don't know, back in the day, uh, I don't know, one of those guys who used to fight on Tuesday night fights, if you said that they coming back and they're about to face somebody, I'm like, man, why, <laughs> why would we even be trying to, you know, do a, a prediction on that. But anyway, after further review, when I looked into Mickey Bay's past, his last fight was against George Cambosis. And so in that fight, he was really successful. He lost a split decision that could have went either way. And, you know, he looked really, really, you know, good, really a really good technical fighter, really good jab, um, nice use of, use of feints. Um, he's just a nice boxer puncher. So I was 
like I say, just understanding like the other fighters that Floyd had, um, you know, boxers that he had. That's why I just wasn't really interested, but he does have a good set of skills, you know. But one thing about Mickey Bay, when I look at his previous fights, that he can be outworked. Now, Tevin Farmer, on the other hand, he hasn't fought since the Jojo Diaz fight. Um, he's a slick defensive boxing, um, has a slick defensive boxing style. And then he uses his defense to kind of diffuse his opponents. You know, he has that mayweather his type of movements at his best, you know, and, and he's really good, really sharp fighter. He didn't start fighting until he's like 19 years old, but man, he, he must be a real natural. Now, going into this fight, Tevin Farmer is 35-1 with six KOs, not much of a puncher. He's 5'6", and he's a southpaw. Mickey Bay, they call him the spirit. He's 23-3-1 with 11 KOs, 5'9", with 69-inch reach, but he's 38 years of age. Now, this fight is going to be really good tactically. You know, Farmer's also coming off a pretty brutal battle, so... This is good that he's coming back against somebody like Mickey Bay, who has 11 KOs and 23 fights, because after the Jojo Diaz fight, he was advised to get a CT scan because of the excessive like blinking and or uncontrollable blinking that he was doing not too long after the fight. They said that everything was okay, and he just took a little bit of time off, so now he's back. And Bay, at this stage of his career and, and the inactivity that he's had, you wouldn't want him to come back and face a devastating KO artist. So somebody with six KOs and 30 fights, that's somebody that you want to put him in with to see where he is. And um, as far as the prediction, based on what I see from both guys, I think that the tricky nature of farmers is going to be too much for Bay after this long inactive period. And you know, at his age, we got a lot of fights that we predict, like the older guys against younger guys, and you know, so on and so forth. And then the inactivity is, is, is also something that we've been kind of been a constant theme, you know, in this the, the, these fights that we've been predicting and talking about. Um, but I just think that that's going to play a factor, especially if you fight somebody so tricky like Seven Farmer, and he's a little bit or a lot more active, usually, typically. You know, he's coming off a long layoff himself, but I think that prior to that, he was fighting on a consistent basis. So, and he's younger. So I think that that's gonna play a factor um, in this fight. I think that he's gonna be just a little bit too elusive and he throws too many punches where Bay, like I said, he could be outworked. And I think that that's what's gonna happen is that he's just gonna overwhelm him with the amount of punches that he's throwing and landing. Bay is gonna have some success in moments, um, but at the same time, I just think that he, it just won't be enough. It's just gonna be the activity, the, um, more punches being landed by Farmer, and Farmer is just being too elusive for Bay at this stage of his career. So I got Tevin Farmer by 12 round decision. Yeah, this will be a, a, a pretty drawn out chess match. Uh, it's actually, a, yeah, like you said, it's a pretty good fight for both guys. It's, it's, not, it's not as high risk as, as taking on a tougher opponents. Probably a fan that likes violence probably wouldn't like this fight. But it's going to be very, very tactical. Somebody who's going to learn a lot about boxing will probably learn a lot watching this fight. You know, uh, Tevin Farmer, um, yeah, like you said, he, he's someone who turned pro late. But for some reason, I mean, his defense is just, when he's at his best, his defense is on point. Like, the way he, he moves, it's just, you have to ask how you learn that. But I think some of those early losses he took in his career, I think that probably played a part in his growth. That, that was probably like his where he really got his amateur growth from. Well, the growth where 
most fighters get in the amateur career, he probably got those earlier losses and learned what to do and what not to do. Um, and Mickey Bay, at one point, uh, you know, he was part of the Mayweather team, being hyped to to uh, be the man. They, they, should, they should put him on all the undercards. Uh, and I remember him uh, being showcased, but uh, lost late against uh, John Molina uh, Jr. I remember that fight. Uh, and since then, Mickey Bay was kind of on the downside. And even before that, I remember he he beat uh, Miguel Vasquez for, I think it was a lightweight title that he won or something like that. But I, I thought Vasquez did enough to win that fight. So by, he pretty much did outwork uh, Mickey Bay. Um, so in this fight, I mean, I don't think uh, Bay has to worry about Farmer outworking him per se, but he will have to worry about a Farmer's activity, um, considering that Mickey Bay is 38 years old. Um, he, he hasn't really been on a top level in a minute, uh, except that George Cambosa's fight. If, if Cambosa never fights here from Lopez, we would be saying that, you know, Mickey Bay hasn't been fighting on top level for a while. Um, but he still has a, he still has pretty, you know, decent fundamentals, uh, enough that it can make this fight interesting. But uh, I think Tevin Farmer is just, you know, too sharp for him. This is a young man's game. Farmer is coming off a fight with one like a top five, you know, top ten lightweight, you know, uh, today. So I, I think um, that activity is going to get Tevin Farmer through, and I have him win a decision. Oh, um, they, he's supposed to be a trainer now, right? Yeah, I, I hear he's training now. But. Yeah, he's supposed to be training Devin Haney with a couple other guys. No, he's acting like Puffy, you know, all in the videos, like an album. Dancing. Come to, yeah. come to TMT. Yeah, man. Come to, well, you can't go to TMT. Floyd be all in the videos, <laughs> dancing. Yeah, that's crazy. But there's a couple other things that I know uh, I don't want this to go too long, too much longer. But, you know, did you have any fights, you know, coming up that you checked out? Because like I said, uh, it may have been last week. I was off last week and I was checking out some fights back in the 80s. Um, there's two questions that I have for you because I know one one you want to discuss, but was there any fight in particular that you would you would advise people to check out if they haven't seen, like something that happened like out the blue in a fight, and you're like, wow, I never expected that to happen because that was something that happened with me when I was checking out that John Tate and Mike Weaver fight, even though I've seen it before, I'm just saying, like, when I saw that at the time and he ended up getting knocked out in the 15th round after he was so successful and he was, you know, on the verge of getting the Ali fight, do you ever have any 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 fight like that, any story like that that you, you saw, you know, as a boxing fan coming up? Oh, uh, yeah, I have to think more about it. I mean, I've had fights that I've seen that, that you know, uh beforehand i had a certain experience i had a certain opinion beforehand but it changed my trajectory of how i thought about the fighter like for example the phoenix trinidad bernard hawkins fight i think that that changed <laughs> pretty much if, if phoenix trinidad would have won that fight i mean think how we would have been ranking him at this point you know um but hold on before you get that that fight always like irks me and i'm gonna tell you why because I think that you would have had, now I don't necessarily say a different outcome, but I think that you would have had 
a more, even though the fight was competitive, a lot of people think that Hopkins whitewashed and he didn't. It was just like the latter part of the fight, he kind of separated himself and then he put an end to it in the 12th. But that fight was really close. But I always, see, I was a huge Felix Tito Trinidad fan. I used to follow everything that he did leading up to a fight. It was a certain period of time that he would train and then he would come to the United States. Like he had this um, procedures that he used to go through for each fight. So a little bit of time before the fight start, then he'd come to the United States and then he'd go away and have his fight. Boom, he'd be like fine-tuned, ready to go, sharp as nails. Then when he fought Hopkins, remember September 11th happened. They were supposed to fight September 15th. And then they had to push the fight back and they didn't know when they were going to have the fight. So since he, and you couldn't fly out, so he couldn't go back to Puerto Rico. So he had to go up to somewhere like Vermont or something like that, um, that he was up in for a while. And then they decided, they said, okay, we'll have him September 29th. And so that kind of changed up what he typically did leading into the fight. And so that's when that, when that was happening, I'm like, dang, that, he might be off a little bit, you know, for this one. But, you know, Hopkins did his thing. But I just always was upset with the fact that, that you know, obviously the event happened, but it just happened during the time when that fight was going to take place. Yeah, and I also have a fight that this, – this is an answer to your question, but this is not probably an answer of, of a fight that I would recommend people watch unless, you know – you're a true boxing fan and just want to know because um, this fight actually did kind of it kind of bothered me but I, I still watch it a lot it, it, it's very entertaining without the the result of it like what happened afterwards and that's the um the the Gerald McClellan versus Nigel Ben fight I mean it was you know a high octane high dramatic it was a very very violent fight uh but also you know because of the aftermath it, it definitely uh, tells you how vicious this game could be, you know, what, what could happen to a, a fighter, especially one who beforehand was, was in, in Gerald McClellan was very, very vicious, very feared. Um, I mean, Mike Tyson was looking at him saying, this guy, man, it's like a destroyer like myself, you know, and, and it definitely did. Of course, it, it pretty much ended Gerald McClellan's career, but I, I remember, you know, how he was portrayed beforehand, like he was going to be that guy. And, and even though he had losses on his record, he was fear, like people were afraid to fight him, <laughs> you know, and, and Nigel Ben was basically brought into that fight to lose against <laughs> Gerald McClellan. So it, it was, it's a very interesting fight. Um, if you're a boxing fan, you want to know, I, I mean, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a very violent, uh, it can bother you at some points, but at the same time, I mean, it, it, it's, the, the great thing about boxing matches is they tell a story, and this one told a, pr a pretty, you know, well thought out story. Yeah, man, G Man was was kind of having his way. He was he almost put him out of there on several occasions, and Nigel Ben hung in there, and that was a violent ending, you know, to a brutal fight. But G Man, man, yeah, he was that dude. And yeah, I was knocked him out in the first round. <laughs> yeah, he had some hands in that. Gerald McClellan, Julian Jackson, like both of those fights, he just, I think the second fight, he, he just was too much for Julian Jackson. But I remember when he beat him for the belt that he was saying that after the fight it was such a war, it went four rounds. And that was, if, if you get a chance, man, I can't remember all those fights that was on that card. I know Julio Cesar Chavez was like the main event, but 
Don King had four main events, like right back to back. Because I remember, like I said, in that fight, it wasn't even that many people in the stands because it was like the early fight. But I remember when um, McClellan won, he was telling the announcer, he said, he, he was asking something, he said, I don't know, so I'm going to get some rest. He says, I got a tremendous headache because he had took some punishment from Julian, even though, you know, he put it into it. But another fight that I was thinking about too, is that Michael Nunn and um, against James Tony? Because Michael Nunn was, was the man. And then that love hook just changed the whole, you know, trajectory of his career. So saying all that to say, man, Boots, keep them hands up. Man, <laughs> we better close things out. You got anything else before we wrap up? Nah, no, sir. Yeah, man, I got to get up out here. I got this date, this cool red, seven o'clock. So let me go ahead and try to, you know, get some things. You said Cougar. Yeah, cougar. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, on that note, hopefully y'all like the episode, you know, uh, and we have more in store for you. Looking forward to next week because you got the Serrano, Taylor. Then you also got the Shakur Stevenson and the uh, Oscar Valdez fights, you know, amongst some other fights that's going to be on those undercards. So we look forward to, you know, chopping it up next week about that. On that note, we out. Have a great week. Peace. Peace.